Hello, I'm Nadi Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing COVID-19, schools, and best practices surrounding in-person learning. To discuss these are IDSA board member, Dr. Tina Tan of Northwestern University, and IDSA member, Dr. Preeti Milani of the University of Michigan. Thank you both for being with me. Dr. Tan, I'll start with you. What are the most important health metrics that should guide decisions around in-person learning? And are these same metrics appropriate for all students of all ages? So we know that one of the most important health metrics is the level of community transmission of COVID-19 that is occurring. So if the rate is high, it would be unwise to open schools for in-person learning. But there are other metrics that are also important to consider, and that includes the ability of schools to implement the protective mitigation protocols, such as universal face masking for teachers, staff, and students, physical distancing measures, hand hygiene, and cohorting of students and teachers. Another metric that's important would be to know the number of children and teachers with underlying conditions that are going to be in the school setting, just so that you have an idea of who might be at increased risk for complications if they were to get COVID. Also monitoring the number of outbreaks occurring in children children or in the school setting, um, the proportion of children and teachers, as well as staff that test positive for the COVID-19, and the number of students that are absent due to respiratory illnesses. I think all these things basically give you a better handle on what amount of disease is circulating in that particular area. Um, These metrics are appropriate for students of all ages. However, even though studies have shown that children under 10 years of age may be less effective transmitters of the virus, it does not mean that they cannot or will not transmit the virus to persons that may be at increased risk for severe COVID-19 disease. So I think that we have to take into account all these different health metrics, no matter what the age of the person is. Now, what we know is that to date, there have been about 625,000 cases of COVID-19 that have occurred in children since the start of the pandemic. And that represents about 10% of all the cases with the largest increase in these cases occurring in the last several months due to increase in summer activities as well as return to school. So I think keeping in mind these health metrics is going to be important as the school year goes on. Having said all that, Dr. Tan, do you think that most U.S. communities have sufficiently low rates of transmission to support safe in-person learning? Actually, I think it's the opposite. Most U.S. communities do not have sufficiently low rates of transmission, and they need to really closely monitor the number of COVID cases that are occurring um, in the school setting. There are some areas of the U.S. that have low enough rates of transmission to support safe in-person learning. However, for the vast majority of the U.S., Um, That is not the case. And based on CDC data, um, the case numbers of COVID-19 remain persistently high across much of the country, with new infections surging in the upper Midwest as well as in parts 
of the western areas of the U.S. Until we get a better handle on the spread of COVID-19, it's going to be very important to continue to monitor this very closely. Thank you, Dr. Tan, for your insights. Moving now to Dr. Milani, we just heard Dr. Tan talk about how most U.S. communities do not have sufficiently low rates of transmission, yet there have been some K-12 schools, colleges, and universities that have resumed their regular in-person instruction. Dr. Milani, is there sufficient data reporting from schools, colleges, and universities to fully understand transmission behavior in these settings yet? Yeah, this is a great question. And one thing to keep in mind is that the return to in-person learning is not a zero-risk proposition, whether it's K-12 through or at the higher education level, and that there are cases of COVID, particularly at colleges. And we've, we've uh, all seen some of these um, reports and some of the concerns. And, and again, with K through 12, just with the sheer number of people that are involved, it, there, there are going to be cases. And so it is really important to keep track of data and to look at some of the metrics that Dr. Tan talked about, and that there's not one single piece of information that is necessarily going to prompt a, a change or make you understand things better. But uh, one of the question is, is one of the questions is really whether there's transmission that is affecting the community. And, you know, again, this is, this is one of the biggest concerns is that if you have an outbreak and it's healthy young people and that they're not spreading to, to their teachers or to faculty or to staff members, it's different than if uh, you're seeing widespread uh, transmission across uh, a community. And, it's really important that communities do track this data and to the best of their ability, figure things out. And frankly, having enough public health capacity to really do the contact tracing and reporting, it should be one of the considerations in terms of reopening face-to-face uh, -face learning. One of the things that has been lacking is the ability to identify contacts of individuals that have been um, positive for COVID-19. And this becomes a real problem in a school setting where you may have a lot of students in contact with the person that was positive, as well as a number of teachers that are in contact with that person. So it's gonna be crucial that there is adequate contact tracing that is occurring so that we can understand a little bit more about the transmission dynamics that are, that are occurring in these cases. Great points from both of you doctors. Dr. Milani, I'd like to send you a follow-up right now. What factors drove transmission in schools, colleges, and universities, and have you been able to identify any trends there? Yeah, so this one is pretty easy. It's social gatherings. It's gathering indoors with masks off, packed in tight, close contact. What we're not seeing is transmission in the classroom, dining halls, even residence halls outside of these social gatherings. And again, the observations are small and I can really only speak for what's happening at the University of Michigan, where I am, but this theme comes up over and over. It's social gatherings and it's social gatherings without the regular mitigation efforts. And it kind of gets at the fact that this is difficult, especially when you have people that want to gather. And so I think offering guidance to young people in particular on how they can gather safely has to be part of the approach. From a younger 
um, child's aspect, it's really emphasizing to the parents that they need to really work with the kids on, you know, universal masking as well as social distancing, because it really is these social gatherings outside of the classroom that are driving the transmission that we're seeing um, in many of these situations. IDSA invites you to kick off ID Week with 24 hours of COVID-19 coverage with Chasing the Sun. This global event begins Wednesday, October 21st at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and other partners have provided funds to offset the cost for attending Chasing the Sun, which gives you access to health authorities from around the world offering unique global perspectives and data on COVID-19. Register now at idweek.org. Excellent answers from both of you, doctors. This next question is geared to both of you and has to do with testing and screening. What testing and screening protocols should schools have in place when in-person learning resumes? And does the U.S. have sufficient testing capacity to support an optimal approach? Dr. Milani, I'll start with you. Testing and screening, again, they, they get lumped together, but of course they are distinct. Screening is, is done a little differently in different places and it can be automated and it can be done without a lot of resources. And I think it is an important aspect of prevention. It helps us think through what, what's going on with us on, on any given day and whether or not we're having any symptoms that might be mild. So that, that is something that can be done and should be done. Uh, testing is a little more complicated and uh, testing requires substantial resources, including trained staff to conduct the tests, uh, the PPE for the staff, the cost, the, the resources, testing capacity. More importantly, you know, testing only offers data for a specific point in time, and it can miss cases in the early stages of infection. And in the case of students on college campuses, it, you know, the, one of the concerns is that would students get a false sense of security and give up on the other mitigation efforts? So testing is an important aspect of the overall approach, and we certainly want to make sure there has to be adequate testing for anyone with signs or symptoms consistent with COVID-19. Also asymptomatic individuals who've had exposures uh, to control transmission. Also robust surveillance. And this is the process of randomly testing a portion of the population who are not experiencing symptoms but are at risk. And so testing is gonna look a little different everywhere. And sometimes people think there's one standard way to test. Uh, and Again, it, it's going to differ in different places, and the K-12 through space is going to look different than the college space. To address your second question, does the U.S. have sufficient testing capacity? Um, most states are lagging behind in testing, and this really contributes to higher rates of infection. And there are several reasons that actually account for why testing is not being done. One of these reasons is that there's a shortage of supplies for testing and there's a backlog of tests with very long wait times to get test results. The other reason is that even if states do have adequate capacity for increasing testing, people are just not getting tested and contact tracers are not able to get in touch with contacts. Um, and this is something that Dr. Milani brought up in that it is really important that if somebody tests positive for COVID, that you're able to track the people that they were in contact with so that these individuals can get tested five to seven days after that contact. 
Other factors that may discourage individuals from being tested include they think they're going to incur a significant cost, they're missing work or school to get tested, and in some areas, they may not meet the criteria that were set out for testing. But if we're going to get a better idea of the amount of COVID-19 and the transmission, we really need to increase testing throughout the U.S. Thank you, doctors, for your answers. Dr. Milani, what steps should a school, college, or university take when a COVID-19 case is identified within that school? I'll focus on the university or college setting. Again, because this is often a residential setting, it has implications that are a little bit different than the K-12 space. Begin with identification of cases, and we just got through talking about testing, and so this might be on-site testing or local urgent cares. Obviously, you want to make sure you provide health and medical support as needed. And the big piece is the case investigation and contact tracing, which Dr. Tan talked about earlier as well. This is something that is difficult to, to operationalize for a lot of colleges, but it's absolutely essential. And it's one of the barriers to having been, uh, it's one of the barriers that has come up uh, causing people to take a pause in face-to-face education, for example. And this needs to also be paired with good planning around quarantine spaces and isolation spaces and all the care that goes into having students away from their usual home. And it could be academic support, it can be food, it can be access to emotional well-being resources. So this is really a big process to build a system that can can support uh, dealing with COVID-19 cases. And frankly, I think it's one of the big reasons why a lot of schools ended up saying we really can't be face-to-face, at least this fall. Yeah, I just want to add that in the K-12 space, if the school's were planning correctly, it would have been good for them to implement protocols where you have cohorting of students and teachers into very specific small groups. Because in that situation, if someone were to test positive in that cohort, then at least you would presume those individuals were in contact with the student. I can see that in a college or university setting, that could be much more difficult given that these individuals um, are probably mixing with other groups of students um, in other classes. But I think in the K through 12 space, um, if cohorting occurred in the classroom, it would make contact tracing of contacts much easier. Thank you, doctors, for your answers. Many experts have indicated the pandemic is likely to worsen in the winter months. How should schools plan for that scenario, Dr. Tan? So I think one of the most important things that can be done right now is that all students, teachers, and staff should be immunized with influenza vaccine to protect them against influenza. We know that influenza circulates um, during the winter months. Many of the symptoms that influenza Um, has overlap with those symptoms that can be seen with COVID. So if you're able to vaccinate these individuals, you would give them some protection against influenza. Schools should also pay attention to community transmission rates of COVID-19. If the transmission rates start to increase, 
then they need to have a plan to go to virtual learning so that there's not so much of a mix of individuals coming into the school setting. And they need to develop these protocols now before the winter months hit so that there is a plan in place should there be a surge of COVID cases as well as influenza cases. The flu shot issue is something that can be addressed now. And the easier you make it to get that vaccination, the more likely people are going to be to to get it. Uh, So that's something that a lot of colleges and universities have have done is just roll it into the health fee and and just make it simple to get it. the, the winter months are really concerning. This is, uh, especially those of us who live in cold climates, it's going to be harder for people to be outdoors. It's going to be harder for them not to gather. So we definitely need to double down on mitigation efforts and remind people uh, about the masks uh, in particular, face coverings. And the other thought that I think we also need to keep in mind is that COVID is not the only risk to health. I am particularly worried about loneliness and social isolation. So I think having robust co-curricular offerings and you know things that can be done in the winter, whether it's playing in the snow or going for a walk with a, with a heavy coat on, uh, those are also important aspects of health and well-being. I think those are really important activities to consider, especially if you have um, children, because they do get cabin fever being inside all the time, and we have to come up with creative ways to let them burn off some of their energy instead of just having them inside watching television or being on the iPad all day long. Again, excellent points from both of you doctors. At this time, I'd like to open the floor for you to add any final thoughts. The entire process is imperfect, and I have described it as making a boat out of a car. You know, you hope that your boat is going to float on the water. It's complex, it's uncertain, and things keep changing. But getting back to some sort of in-person learning also has incredible value. So this is one of these situations where the entire community has to work together to keep numbers low so that whether it's young kids or college students or whoever, uh, whichever group we're talking about can get back to -to face-to-face learning. And, you know, frankly... Virtual learning and remote learning is also not simple, and it's not without its own problems. And on the college campuses, there actually are places that are fully remote that are having huge outbreaks. So again, I think this is one where we have to focus on trying to do our very best to mitigate risk, understanding that we cannot fully eliminate it. This is a situation that changes on a daily basis, and I really think that we just have to be very vigilant in monitoring the rates of transmission occurring in the community to determine whether or not in-person learning can be done safely for both the teachers as well as the students. I agree that there's so much more value in in in-person learning but we want to be able to do it in a way that is safe for everyone. And as we're learning now, these entire virtual classrooms do create problems themselves in that many of the ethnic minorities and financially desperate communities are having difficulty with virtual learning for a number of other reasons, but it just places these kids 
further behind in their classroom work because of these additional issues. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Milani and Tan for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.